text for this morning's sermon is Luke 23, verses 44 through 56. Luke 23, 44 through 56. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Father, I pray that you help us as we look at Jesus' work on the cross, as we uh, consider all that you're showing us in your word. Uh, Father, we know that we need the Holy Spirit to not only understand, but to love what we see. And so, Father, we ask that you would show us the your glory in the face of Christ, especially as he dies for us on the cross. Father, I pray that you would work uh, individually in each one as you have prepared. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Bible tells us through the lips of the Apostle Paul, that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is our greatest enemy. Death is the wages of sin. What we've earned because we've sinned is death. And so death sits in front of every man. Death most fundamentally involves separation. When we think of physical death, physical death is when the spirit of a man or woman separates from his or her physical body. That's what we would call uh, physical death. We just saw the thief on the cross. Jesus told him, today... You'll be with me in paradise as his body dies on the cross. His spirit goes uh, with Christ. So if physical death is separation from 
the body, the spirit separation from the body, spiritual death then is separation uh, from a man with their God, with God. Sin brings about physical death and sin brings about separation in relation to God. We're told that all of us born in Adam are haters of God. That no one seeks for God. That no one's good. Not even one. That the inclination of our children's hearts as they grow up before they're converted is selfishness, is rebellion, is to have control of their life rather than put themselves under the submission of their parents whom God has put over them, none of that comes natural because of spiritual death. When Adam and Eve sinned, they died spiritually. God told them they would die if they ate from the tree that he told them not to eat from. In Genesis 2.17, we're told that. And after Adam and Eve sin, we see the relationship that's broken. We see them in verses 23 and 24 of Genesis 3 as God sent them out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden and placed a cherubim, which is an angel and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So now that man has sinned and their relationship with God is broken so that man doesn't eat from the tree of life and live forever separated from God, God puts a barrier. He puts these cherubim with a flaming sword reminding them that there is no eternal life outside of a relationship with God. Physical death is set in place. Read the genealogies in Genesis. They all begin to die. Death is already sent in motion in Adam and Eve. Every day longer they live is a day closer to their death. But there's another type of death that's even more terrifying. And this is a type of spiritual death that is called the second death. It involves both physical and spiritual. The second death described in the scripture is when an embodied soul, so after the resurrection, there's a resurrection unto life and a resurrection unto death, where the spirits of man and their bodies will come back together for some sort of life everlasting or if you could call it that one unto a resurrection of life another a resurrection unto death and this second death is the death where eternal separation happens from the blessings of God forever The one who is cast into hell 
which is also described as outer darkness, is not only separated from every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that the believer has, but now they'll only experience the just fury and wrath of God for all eternity. There's no escaping God's presence totally. For in hell, there is only a separation from God's blessings of his countenance and his light. But in hell, God will always be there in his eternal wrath. Satan is not the king of hell. God is. His presence will be there forever. There is no way for a human being to escape the presence of God. One will either be in his blessing or will be in his wrath. You see, a non-believer who is spiritually dead, that has physical death awaiting them, and the second death awaiting them, right now experiences the creational blessing of God. Unbelievers get to stand on ground. In hell, it's a bottomless pit. Unbelievers get to have families. They get to have relationships. They get to see things. They get to have sunrises and sunsets. They get to see the moon. They get to see the stars. And yet, what's awaiting every human being outside of Christ is not only physical death. They've already experienced the broken relationship with God. But one day, it would be the eternal separation from all the blessings of knowing God and living in His light. And so in Romans 1.18, when it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, we all ought to soberly say the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness? Well, I'm ungodly. Everyone I know is ungodly. And then in Romans 2.5, it's, we're told that because of your hard, impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Most people think who are living in rebellion to God that God is pretty nice because right now God's being patient with them, that they would have time to repent and trust Him. But because of their hard and penitent heart, Paul says they're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. What they think is normal won't be normal when the day of the Lord comes. The day of the Lord that is written about all throughout the Old Testament is the most terrifying day in human history. It is the day when the Lord comes down in his fury and wrath and judges the world, the ungodly. 
Let me just read from a few of the prophets to, to get the picture in our mind. Isaiah 13, 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction come, uh, or as destruction from the Almighty will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble. Every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to, and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I'll punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I'll put an end to the pomp and arrogant uh, and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. That's how Isaiah describes the day of the Lord. Ezekiel says this, Ezekiel 30 verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God, wail. So this is how Isaiah started. Wail, alas for the day, for the day is near. The day of the Lord is is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. In Joel chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2, here's how Joel describes the day of the Lord. Behold a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy hill. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains. A great and powerful people there has never been before, nor will ever be again after them through the years of all generations. It'll be a day of darkness. It'll be a day of gloom. Joel 2.10 says this, the earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened. The stars withdraw from their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And then Joel 2.30 says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Two more from the prophet Amos. Amos 5.18 says this, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Who would ever do that? Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, gloom with no brightness in it? And then finally, 
Amos 8, 9, and 10. On that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and your songs into lamentation. I'll bring sackcloth on every waist and boldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son. The end of it like a bitter day. The first three hours that Jesus hung on the cross was like a circus. People were having fun. They went and watched crucifixions as entertainment. Just as they went and watched Christians torn apart in the Colosseum for sport. A crucifixion was entertainment. It was a time to come and mock the criminals. And it was full of scoffing and mocking from the soldiers, from the religious leaders. They had already dressed him up and mocked him as a king. The first three hours was a circus. But everything changes three hours into the cross. Look at our text. Look at Luke 23, beginning in verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour. That's noon. That's noon. He was put on the cross, Mark tells us, at the third hour, at nine o'clock in the morning. They're mocking him, making fun of him. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. If man had seeming control of the first three hours, God shows up in supernatural horror three hours into Jesus on the cross. When the wind and the waves obey Jesus, they say, surely he must be the Son of God. Who controls the weather but God? Who can shut the sun down from giving its light but God alone? Skeptics have argued it must have been a solar eclipse. Well, here's the problem. A solar eclipse needs to take place at a new moon and the Passover feast takes place at a full moon. So that would be impossible. It couldn't go dark for three hours, pitch black, apart from God doing a supernatural miracle. God has shown himself supernaturally at this point. This isn't new for God. When God met with Abraham in Genesis 15, 12, we read as the sun was going down, deep sleep fell on Abraham and behold, a dreadful great darkness fell upon him as God's presence came. God has showed his coming before through darkness. 
And if you remember in Exodus 10.21, one of the plagues, we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. (laughs) Not just seen, but a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven, and there was pitch darkness in the land of Egypt for three days. Miracles aren't tough for God. The laws he set in place, he just does what he doesn't usually do. It's not harder for him to keep the law in place or to change it. God is God and God has shown up at Christ's crucifixion with blackness at noonday. The hardest time to do the miracle would seemingly be at noon. When the sun's going down, I suppose a great cloud could make it go dark early. I've sat in the bow stand before and a cloud comes and all of a sudden, shoot, I just lost 10 minutes of my hunt. That's not what this is. This is at noon. Total blackness. A Jew would only understand this in one way. If they knew their Old Testament, they knew that on the day of the Lord, judgment was coming. And they would know on that day, it's going to be a day of deep darkness. It's going to be a day of gloom with no brightness. It's going to be a day where the earth trembles and shakes and rocks are split. And as the so-called Son of God, whom they're mocking, hangs on the cross, it looks like God has shown up in judgment. And they would be right. He has. God has shown up in darkness. Matthew 8.11 describes hell in this way. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west to recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is an outer darkness apart from any part of the goodness of God. The only part of God that's present is His judgment. That's how hell is described. Matthew twenty-two twelve speaks of a man at a wedding feast without the right wedding clothes. This is a man who thought he could get to heaven by his good works, but he doesn't have Christ's righteousness. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. Where there will be, it'll be a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. Hell has shown up on earth. And the question is, 
who is being judged. Jesus is being judged. God's wrath is being poured out on His own Son for your sins and for my sins. Scott read Isaiah 53.10 For it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. The one who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Hell, a foretaste of the day of the Lord that's coming for anyone outside of Christ has come. And it's come upon Jesus Christ on the cross. Every part of me wanted to read this text and think that what it means is God is saying, oh, you mess with my son. This is what, I, this is what I'm going to do to you. And let's just admit, there is a warning, is there not? The day of the Lord will come. You reject the son, that day will come. Eternal separation from not only a relationship with God, but the creational goodness of God stands before anyone outside of Christ. But what this text means is that Jesus is bearing the wrath of God in our place. Jesus is being a propitiation. He's swallowing up the wrath of God that we deserve on that cross. And He's only ever been perfect. He's been mocked. These people deserve to die. And yet, God shows up with wrath for Christ. And the Gospels describe no words being spoken for these three hours. No words. This is the biggest day in Jerusalem of the year when they sacrificed the Passover lamb in three hours. At three o'clock, they're going to start sacrificing the lambs. The logistical nightmare of slaughtering that many thousands of lambs all at the... It's, I mean, you literally would have to be slaughtering another lamb, slaughter, another lamb, slaughter. Blood would have been flowing out of the temple. And as preparations are being made and as they're ready to do this, at nighttime when you bring a flashlight or you bring a candle, but at noon it goes pitch black. On the most important day when Jerusalem is swelled with Jews from all regions and it's pitch black and there's no more joking around and there's no more giggling and there's no more scoffing. Everything would be on hold. How are you going to navigate? You weren't ready for pitch blackness. When you have nighttime, you have stars. You have the moon. You have some sort of light. Pitch blackness at noontime. Because God has shown up in judgment. And so we behold His supernatural presence in the darkness. 
Is God glorified as he crushes Jesus for our sins? And the answer is, our God is holy. So when your sin is on Jesus, God does right to pour out hell on Jesus. Here's what John MacArthur says. God brought outer darkness of hell to Jerusalem that day. He unleashed on Jesus Christ the full extent of his wrath against the sins who, of all who would ever be saved. He says, the darkness was not caused by the absence of God, but rather by his presence and full judgment, vengeance and fury. Infinite wrath moved by infinite righteousness, released on infinite punishment on the Son. Because He is infinite, in just three hours, He was able to absorb all the punishment of eternal hell for all who would forever believe. Or all who would ever believe. You see, if you face God on Judgment Day without Christ, His righteousness demands eternal punishment it can never stop because god's that just and your sin is that bad but when the infinite son of god he's so strong he's so infinite he's so god that he can swallow up eternal wrath upon himself he didn't get three hours of a taste of hell for us he experienced the onslaught of all of it for us. If you ever want to know how much greater and more powerful Christ is than you, just imagine you having to bear the wrath. That'll be eternal. And he swallows it up and on the cross. Now let's behold his supernatural presence and grace. So after it goes dark at noon, we read, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. So that at the end of these three hours, just as it starts to become light in the temple, one of the biggest curtains ever made tears from top to bottom. If there was chaos in the temple because it was black, ultimate chaos would take place now because God dwells behind that curtain in the holies of holies. Only a high priest can go in there and only for a moment, once a year, and he needs blood sacrifice for his own sins to even go in there for a moment. And now it's torn from the top to the bottom. We read in Exodus chapter 10, or I'm sorry, Exodus uh, chapter 26 in verse 1 about these curtains that were made. For behold, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine linen, blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked within them. 
The curtains separate people from God's holiness. And God said, put cherubim on. Why? Because the cherubim were what was guarding the Garden of Eden when man sinned. It it was representing that you can't come in here because of your sin without sacrifices, without a priest. And so on those curtains were cherubim. And God is saying in this moment, there is a way opened to have a relationship with me. The final sacrifice has been made. The final priest is here. There's a way to dwell with God again in His presence. At just the time, I would hope God would come and just smash their teeth into the ground. Jesus has just got them praying, Lord, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus takes the wrath of God and God gives grace to sinners through that sacrifice. And is there any other human response but worship that ought to come from us? God's love on display as this curtain tears. This is a very hard sermon to preach in one sermon. We could spend five weeks on the curtain tearing and all that means and that the priesthood and the temple and all of its works are done as soon as that curtain tears. It's all a joke after this. There is no more Passover being eaten. Because Christ has come. He has opened the way. The new covenant has arrived. And sinners can with confidence walk into the presence of God. Not because they've somehow become good on their own, but because of Christ's righteousness. He's taken their sins away. He's given them righteousness which they've lacked. And the curtain was torn. John 3.36 says this, whoever believes in the Son has, present tense, eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. But if you have the Son... You are no longer the person waiting the fearful expectation of judgment, but you have eternal life in Christ. Have you been made right with Christ because you've trusted in Jesus by faith? There is no way to a relationship with God apart from Christ. Just listen to these New Testament promises. I've just got to give them to you really fast. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore, we have now been justified, that means found not guilty, by His blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his sons, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? Or listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Our first Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.9, For they themselves report to us, our report, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you would turn from God to idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Or listen to 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. What is happening on this cross will fuel our worship for all eternity. These songs are appropriate, talking about the depths of Calvary, praying for help to understand the breadth and height and depth of the love of Christ. Third, let's behold his supernatural presence in his death. Then we read in verse 46, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Never before as anyone who had ever been crucified died like this. It would be impossible. Crucifixion is a death of asphyxiation. You can't breathe. To get a breath, you got to push up with your feet, pull up with your arms to get a breath. And so someone who dies on the cross, normally it takes two to three days to die on a cross. And the last hours of someone who would die would be total unconsciousness as you lack oxygen to the brain. But John tells us back in John 10, 17, here's what Jesus says. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. So when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and Luke tells us he says it in a loud voice, Jesus shows his supernatural power and that his life was not taken from him, but he willingly gave his spirit to the Father as it leaves his body. And he dies in total control. The other Gospels obviously give us a lot more detail. Jesus said, it is finished. 
meaning it's accomplished. He's accomplished what he came to accomplish on the cross. And so we see his supernatural presence even in the way he died. And then we get to see a supernatural presence in the conversion of people. Look at verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. Mark 15, 39, the same centurion says, truly this man was the son of God. How are you going to deny it? We're told from the other Gospels that as he breathed his last and the earth shook, it was such a powerful earthquake that rocks are split. And not only did the curtain tear, the rocks are split. It's just been dark. But when the rocks split, souls come out of the grave, take on bodies and walk around Jerusalem as a supernatural example of the resurrection from the dead. That if he does it here, he's going to do it again. Christ is the first fruits of those who will come after. As the centurion watches these things, he says, truly, this is the Son of God, an unlikely convert, one who is just mocking him a few hours earlier. And once again, we have seven times we're told throughout this narrative that Jesus is innocent. And now we have the one doing the crucifixion saying he's innocent. It's incredible. And then in verse 48, we read all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. How could you stand close when you love him so much and you saw what they were doing to him? It's not a surprise they're found a ways away. But the people, after watching this, the giddy entertainment's over. They're beating their breasts. They're scared to death the same way you'd be scared to death. We hear of a virus and the whole world goes crazy. What type of chaos would come upon the hearts and minds of people if it went dark at noon, if an earthquake happened, if people came back from the dead? And so I don't think the crowds are described as converted necessarily but they're humble, they're scared. They've seen the presence of God's judgment. And then we read in verse 50. I think I'm going to wait till next week. There's too much here in this next section. I so bad just wanted to get to the resurrection on Easter. The end of next week's sermon will be at the resurrection. (laughs) But I want to close by 
simply a human being created in the image of God, a sinner whose soul will go on for all eternity. In fact, my body will come back for all eternity. What price can you put on your soul? What price can you put on your soul? What hope do you have on that day? Is your hope that he really wasn't the son of God? That Jesus really didn't exist? That he didn't really wasn't resurrected from the dead? Scripture after scripture fulfilled. The day of the Lord is real. He will come back. He came the first time to make a way to split the curtain. The curtain is his flesh. As his flesh is torn, there's a way open. You're alive right now. Countless billions have gone out into eternity. No chance to repent. And yet you sit here by the grace and mercy of God with an opportunity to cling to Jesus Christ by faith and say, I have no hope except Christ save me, except Christ be the mediator for me. We look at our bank accounts. We look at our houses. We look at how we stand before other people, whether we're popular, whether we're cool, whether we fit in. All these things, we spend all this time in the spiritual battle we must be facing when we don't consider the most important thing, which is the state of our soul. So I would just beg of you, don't miss the love of God shown at Calvary for you and for me. When you have Christ, the worst thing that can be promised to you is death, which means instant paradise in the presence of God. Our physical death launches us into the fullness of spiritual life and then we await our new bodies. What hope and joy we can have when we have Christ. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Just let those words sink in. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life right now. Whoever does not obey the Son and the Son's charge to you is to believe in Him. That's His charge. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see that eternal life, but the wrath of God remains on Him even in the presence even as they live right now. Father, would you by your grace draw us to Christ? Father, for those of us that are already saved, already trusting in Christ, would we just meditate on, can we ever sing with enough heart that you're worthy of for taking our place, Father. We're so weak. Our hearts are so dull. Father, would you grant us a greater understanding of your love? Father, we long for the day where we'll worship you with a full heart, 
with no sin. Father, I pray for those who have yet to repent, yet to tremble before you. Maybe they've just lived their life like pretending like they're not going to face you, that they're not accountable to you. Father, I pray that this morning they would run to the Savior, their only hope. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.